Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. Recognizing that life itself is impermanent, that my own life is impermanent, what do we then strive for? You know, I, I think a lot about this about this a lot. There's That's the voice of author and activist Derek Jensen. On this week's show, we speak with Derek regarding his newest book, Monsters. Derek and host Sylvie Richardson take a deep dive on his book about death and renewal. So stay tuned. You are listening to Latin Waves. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson. I'm delighted today to be joined by Derek Jensen. He's a prolific author. He's the author of many books, including Endgame, The Myth of Human Supremacy. Uh, he's also the author of my favorite book, Monsters. Thank you so much for joining me, Derek. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It's always wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. Now, I love your book. I love the images. I love the poetry in it. And I love that you bring us to see uh, not just the possibilities, but also the power of ideas. And I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about one of the stories of the book is about the skeleton and in your book, you, you begin by talking about how bones are, are stronger, this ability of bones to be almost unbreakable. Can we begin our conversation by talking about the lessons we learn from death, the capacity that we all have to, to not only experience it, but to learn from it? Thanks for that question. And the, the story about the skeleton is, I mean, these are all, non, these are all fiction stories about different monsters. And... The story is about two characters who go to an amusement park, and one of the rides consists of them going into this room where there is a a skeleton, and the skeleton talks to everybody. It's, it's physical setup I'm thinking of would be kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean in the you know the old uh, Disneyland, and so you see this this. Uh, machine that's made to look like a skeleton um, then is starts talking and the the original idea for the story was that a friend sent me this really great analysis of of anorexia and of especially how um, women in patriarchy are taught to hate their bodies and then it it, it was also about um, Eric Fromm, the psychiatrist who wrote some really good books, um, The Art of Loving is his most famous, and my favorite of his was The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness. And he talked a lot about this culture being necrophiliac. And what he meant by that, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a love of death, and it is about sort of a hatred of the natural world and a preference for machine culture. I mean, just one of the best examples I can think of of necrophilia is the search for aliens in outer space. And 
there's a, a great line by this astronomer a few years ago. They were asking him, uh, why do you think we should explore Mars? And he said to answer that most important question of all, which is, are we all alone? And when he said that, I just laughed out loud because he can ask, are we all alone as we're surrounded by this beautiful life on this planet that we're killing? You know, scientists will get really, really excited when they can create some enzymes in the in, in a laboratory or they can do basic building blocks of life. And it's like we're so close to making life in a laboratory. And whenever I hear that, I always just laugh and I think, yeah, there's probably been a lot of lives made in laboratories when some male and female had sex. And there's also lots of life made in laboratories when male and female rats have sex or when bacteria divide. But that's not counted. I mean, another way to think of all this is when we think of beautiful pieces of art, you know, usually we think of, I don't know, the Sistine Chapel or or Beethoven's Ninth or the Mona Lisa or, you know, some other piece of art. Um, but how often do we think of frog song or bird song, Swainson's thrushes or red-winged blackbirds or meadowlarks or... You know, I'm, I'm looking out the window and I see I see the tops of trees that are swaying in the breeze up at the tops of the trees, and it's it's, it's beautiful. Why is that not art? Um, I remember years ago I went to interview Neil Everton in Toronto, and it happened to be in October, early October. I, I went to see a friend in Ohio, and then we drove up together, and the forests were in full color and they were beautiful. And Neil Everton's a fabulous philosopher, and one of the things I mentioned to him offhand is, as I said, it's like the trees were showboating or something. They're just showing off. And he said, why do you say it's like they're showing off? Why can't they just be showing off? Why can't, why can't they be beautiful because they want to be? Why, why is that not art? And, um, and so the, 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 the story about the skeleton is really about, I mean, it's not even a skeleton. It's a fake skeleton. It's a machine that's made to look like a skeleton talking about how, how flesh goes away and machines don't. And, uh, you know, we have all, you and me and all of us, have had, have had in our lives someone we love die. And we all get older and we lose abilities. You know, in, in college I was a high jumper. And, you know, I couldn't jump. I couldn't jump two feet now. And that's what happens. You know, the death at the end of our life is the... Um, is the, is, is the price of admission to this wonderful, beautiful time that we get to have in the meantime. And that because we in this culture think that we are separate from life, that offends us. And we try all sorts of things to pretend that this is not just a part of life and to pretend that we don't have to I don't know. I don't know if I can say it better than to say that we just get offended at the notion that what happens to everyone else also happens to us and to those we love. And the story of the skeleton is really about that hatred of the body that emerges. I mean, it's this weird relationship we end up having with death where, where we both terribly fear it and we also end up, because we fear it so much, we end up killing everything around us. What? So that that's that's one of the things I was trying to uh, to play with. One of the ideas I was trying to play with in that story, and because a friend of mine sent me a note about um, about how 
how this culture makes women hate their bodies. What really spoke to me is um, in, in your story, you have one sentence that says, it is our nature to hate our flesh, to hate our nature, and to strive always for perfection, for the ideal. Flesh fails, ideals do not. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. That That's a line given by the skeleton, and the skeleton is lying to us. <laughs> it is not in our nature. But that's one of the things that, that we try to convince ourselves is that what we're doing here, this hatred that we feel of our own bodies and of and this hatred of nature is natural, but it's not. It It comes from this separation from earth that we all participate in in this culture and you know i i've i've thought about this i mean i've thought about this a lot for a long time but i've thought about it especially um since you know my my mom got cancer last year and died in november and we were very close and i mean she was my best friend and we um you know, I think about, I think a lot about what is the point of life and recognizing that life itself is impermanent, that my own life is impermanent. What do we then strive for? You know, I, I think a lot about this, about this a lot. There's lamentations in the Bible begins with vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And what they mean by vanity in that case is not vanity like pride, um, but vanity in the other meaning of vain, as in, once again, not as in somebody is vain, but something was done in vain. Everything is, in the end, it doesn't matter what you do. It's the Ozymandias story that, you know, you can conquer the entire region and you still die. And that leads some people to hedonism. You know, maybe the point is to just have as much pleasure as possible. I think about this as I was, as I was, as, as my mom was dying and I was taking care of her, I was reading a book called Being Mortal, written by a doctor. It was really good, and it helped, helped explain something to me, that, that basically as people get older, they're a little bit less interested in doing long-term self-improvement projects because they are, it's a marginal cost, marginal return. That you know, when I was 20, I read tons of philosophy, and I read a lot of history, and I enjoyed it, but as I've gotten older, I've just... I've read more crap, honestly, more mystery novels. He, he he gives the reason for that, that that when you're young, you know, I can spend a year and a half reading Edward Gibbon's The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and then for the rest of my life, I can refer back to it. And so when I'm 20, that means for the next 60 years, I can refer to it. But by the time I'm going on 60, you know, I'm only going to refer to it for 20 years. You know, another great example has to do, and I'll come back to a point in a second, that, you know, as my mom was, I mean, she was 87, and she was in a lot of pain from some shoulder injuries, I mean, some shoulder problems and some other problems, and then, of course, the cancer. And we went to, we went to a specialist to see if she was, was able to do a, um, this very, very, difficult procedure called the Whipple surgery. That was her only hope. And she, she was not a candidate because the disease that the cancer had progressed too far. I mean, my mom was a, was a Nebraska farm girl to the end and she was just tough and stoic, but that doesn't alter the fact that she accepted 
the fact that she was going to die with great equanimity. And on one hand, I mean, I understand that because of her personality. And then on the other hand, I understand it because this surgery was really terrible. And everybody says the recovery is awful. And if you're 20 years old, you undergo a surgery like that that's really horrible because you got 60 years ahead of you. But if you're 87 and already in pain, and it's going to be a surgery with four months of terrible pain afterwards, and you're maybe going to live two years, it's like, what's the point? And why am I saying all that? I'm saying all that because when you recognize that we're going to die someday, we have a lot of ways to deal with that, and religion is one of them. But, um, you know, this notion that after you die, you take on another form, which may be, I'm not discounting that. Um, There are all sorts of others. But for me, what I've come to, you know, like I said, there's the, the fact that someday you might die means maybe, heck, just have as many orgasms as possible and eat as much fine food as possible, as many potato chips as you want, you know, and That's one possibility, but the one that has really stuck with me is that the thing that is supposed to continue after we die is the land, and that was always supposed to be for all of time until recently. I read this really great book last year, a couple years ago, two years ago, a very interesting book called 13 Moons by um, uh, Charles Frazier, the guy who wrote Cold Mountain, and this book is supposed to be a love story between a man and a woman And I thought that love story was okay, but what I really loved about the book was it was really the the main character, the protagonist, really loved the land. And it was set in 1820 to 1900, North Carolina. And the land went through a lot of changes then as when he started, there were still a lot of wolves there. Buffalo had just been eradicated. And by the end, you know, there's railroads and cars are just starting and everything has been pretty much destroyed. And he has this great bit at the end as this man is really old and his friends have died, his, his, the woman he loved died, and his parents, of course, are long since dead. And he talks about how this is what all beings, just like a friend of mine said, that you know, we are all born to become orphans. And that's, that's true. This is, this is what happens. You know, the, the members of the elder generation are now gone. And now, in my immediate family, I'm part of that oldest generation. And, you know, my niece, now has four children of her own, and it just, that moves on. And he said, we are supposed to experience that. You know, in a hunting-gathering community of 120 people, a small village, um, you know, let's say everybody lives to be 60 to make the math easy. That means two people are going to die a year. You're going to be used to it. You know that happens. That's all fine, but the thing that we're not used to is we're not used, we did not evolve to be able to deal with the experience of losing the land. Sure, this tree might fall and another tree might start coming up in its place, but entire forests didn't disappear. The thing that continues is the earth itself. And one of the things that we're supposed to do is to try to leave the earth a better place because we were born. That's what's supposed to continue, and that's what is the antithesis of the skeleton in that mm. story. I love it. I, I just want to say I'm really sorry that your heart is broken, that you've lost your mother. And 
I, I hope you are taking care of yourself and you are you know, nurturing yourself because I think perhaps we are born to be orphans, but perhaps we are born to one day learn to parent ourselves, right? And in learning to parenting, we are also learning to care for others. We're also learning our relational um, connection to the world. We're also learning that we are one being among multitudes of beings. And that doesn't just mean homo sapiens, you know, that means beings that have branches, beings that are have been here for billions of years like the to me it just mm -hmm. mesmerizes that a, a, a little rock a little pebble has been here longer than most civilizations and and that to me is wondrous and so i love the way you write to remind us of that connection in your book you write about the uh, there's a story called we're creature and I love the 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 play on words because imme immediately one could think of a werewolf. Uh, you, your first image is that of a beautiful wolf. But the first passage on your book, you write, a bullet passes through skin in about one of a 250th thousand of a second. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. But over the next thousand of a second, the bullet plows through the tissue and bone, crushing everything in its path. It creates pressure waves like explosion in water, since after all, bodies are mostly bodies of water. That destroys nearly tissue, bone splinter, with each splinter becoming its own tiny projectile. I love the imagery. I love the way you just take me there and I see it. I see the massacre underway. I see the the way the massacre is recorded, you know, by the bodies. And I, I love that you bring us to that sense of recognition. And immediately when we think of massacres, you know, if you lived in a war-torn country as a child, I grew up to the sound of bombs and the, the imagery is very lively. But you're bringing us to another massacre one that happens unnoticed and it happens repeatedly and all the kinds of murders that happen this story in particular and why it is so essential that we remember the importance of you know our ability to to co-create life and also our capacity to create so much destruction so is it okay with you if I if I if I give away the ending of that story? Sure. Okay. Um, so that story, when we think of werewolves, you know, it's it's a human who is turned into a wolf every four weeks. You know, when the when the moon is full or whatever, and um, that story turns it on its head, and it's a wolf who every four months becomes a human who kills wolves. I mean, I'm sorry, every four months, every four weeks. And, um, and so I was just trying to turn the whole thing on its head with that, you know, right now. Okay. So where I live, I see bears every day. And right now there are four bears I see every day. There's a mother and baby and mothers and babies usually have their own territory. I mean, the mothers have, have ter territory and there's also a couple of yearlings and yearlings 
right now, we're recording this in uh, toward the end of June, and this is I, there are two two yearlings I see every day, and this is the worst week of their life because they were just chased away from their mother by adults. That's how the mother and baby will hang out for a year, and then a new the way that they that the female comes into estrus again is that a male will chase the baby away and then she comes into estrus and they hang out for a week or two and then she's pregnant. So she'll have a baby every couple of years. Anyway, so the week that they get sent away is just the worst week of their life. And I see these bears. Normally, the bears and I, when we see each other, we will say, you know, hi, and just though they, they don't run away because they know it's safe on this land. But this, you know, if these bears see me, they just run like crazy because they're scared of everything right now. And the point I'm bringing, the reason I bring all that up is because now that I see four bears every day, seeing one or two is is okay, but seeing four bears a day, my mom used to use the phrase bear overload. And I'm kind of on bear overload. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of a lot to see in a day. And I was thinking about the bear overload term, overload, overload term last night. And then today I was like, oh, for crying out loud, these bears don't do anything. Sometimes they scratch at the door or sometimes they will. I mean, the, the the door frame has been all torn up because the bears chew on it. And a couple of years ago, there was a baby who got in the habit of chewing on the tires of my truck. So three times during the summer, I had to replace my tire. It's like, that's not the, that big of a deal. But if I get on bear overload, how much do we think at this point they get on human overload? Because the bears aren't setting traps for me. They're not shooting at me. They're not burning down my house. They're not clear-cutting my house, taking chainsaws to my house. So I just think about how much so many non-humans must get on human overload. It's like, yeah, we used to like them when we saw them once in a while, but now they're not very nice to us. I love that you point that out. We we're having conversations in, you know, <laughs> in British Columbia, certain areas where, you know, the deer get to be too numerous and where uh, but on the other hand, where wolves have been hunted to almost extinction, right? So, of course, there is an imbalance. When we take so much without regard for other lives, we create this kind of imbalance in, in, in life. And, and then we, we blame, of course, uh, the beings that remain. And, you know, we, we cut down beautiful forests. We leave wolves. We leave coyotes. We leave everything without a home. And we complain when they come to our houses i often think about um this as not only the the sense that we have forgotten our relational responsibility to life um i was thinking about how you know when a child is born how much care it needs uh, my daughter just had a baby and this little being is wondrous she's amazing but she's constantly in need of care. She needs so many things provided. She needs so... And, and it's, it's impossible to think that, you know, one mama <laughs> could take, possibly could take care of, uh, of a being that is so dependent that needs everything. And in the same way, you know, it's ima it, unim unthinkable for me to think that, you know, uh, a whole entire um, system you know, can be destroyed. And then we don't, we, we don't often think about, you know, the, the bears, the, the bears, the beautiful um, 
coyotes, the, the, the beings that existed there long before we decided that was a good place to build a house. So the monster within, um, it's perhaps uh, what, this, what your book awakens me to is, you know, what, how is it I man, how are we living? Are we living in a way that is regenerative? Are we living in a way that is, that is death loving, you know, that is in a constant pursuit of deadening of spaces? Not only is the, the land the way that we connect to ourselves, but it's also, I think, our home is it's it's actually the more we protect the land the more we we will ensure we have a home yeah yeah and and one of the reasons i love being interviewed by you is your questions are always so extraordinary and i yes i i i love everything you just said it's all it's all really great and i think that that is one of the things that we need to do is remember that this is our home. And, you know, a lot of times people will say, you know, American Indians affected the land base too, and therefore it's okay for people to put in dams or people to, you know, do whatever. And I read this great line many years ago, which is, yes, they affected the land, but they were planning on living there for the next 500 years. And if you are planning on living in place, like the, the Indians who lived on the land where I live now, the Talawa, they lived here for at least 12,500 years prior to the beginning of this culture. And if you're planning on living in place for the next 500 years, you're going to make different land use decisions. You will not put in dams and wipe out the salmon. You will not poison the land with pesticides and herbicides. You will, I shouldn't call them pesticides because they're not pests. Uh, you won't poison the land with insecticides or rodenticides. Um, or herbicides, you will live completely differently. And if someone tries to kill too many of the salmon so that there won't be salmon next year, you will stop them. If you're not planning on living in a place for the next 500 years, if that's not your, your home, then you will make land use decisions that are not beneficial to that home and not beneficial to everybody who comes after. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. I highly recommend our audience reach your books. Quickly give us your website. Um, it's DerekJensen.org, www.derickjensen.org. And let's do this again sometime. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and uh, blessings to you. Thank you again. Okay, thank you. Take care. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com. Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.